uh, we'll see if we can, we can wake up a little bit. Anyone need more coffee? I don't know why I need coffee. It's like everyone's on a sun hangover or something. You just had too much sun yesterday. Don't know what to do with it. Last week, we started this little three-week series called Own It, and we were talking about our faith, owning our faith, that, that this relationship that, that we've been given the gift of is something that we have to own for ourselves, and we said we have to pick up the controller. We don't watch the walkthroughs of someone else to do it, and I know some of the games, you remember when you turn on the game, they would just kind of do this, this little animated walkthrough, and sometimes the, the, the pre-animated version would win, sometimes they would lose, but you know, we don't just watch the walkthrough of someone else's life of faith and then expect that we have faith. We have to actually pick up the controller and engage with this faith that we have been given. And we talked about how faith is a gift, and God wants to give us this gift of faith, and it's more than we can carry, but to receive this gift of faith, we kind of have to lay down everything that we have to be able to receive it. And oftentimes, the thing that keeps us from receiving the gift of faith that God wants us to have is because we're still holding on to everything so tightly. We want to hold on and control everything, and so we have to lay that down. And that leads me into this week, which is going to seem contradictory to last week, and that is part two, lay down the controller. Some of us have to, many of us actually have to lay down the controller. We, we want to come to God and come to our relationship with God and come to our interaction with the community of God and control the entire experience, right? And this is kind of how we live. Today we're talking about the church, but we're talking a lot about a lot bigger issue, and that is kind of our, our culture as Americans. You know, we expect to be in charge and in control of every single minute aspect of our lives. Am I right? Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live my life. Don't tell me how to do this or how to do that. I am in charge. I am in control. And if what I want to do and how I want to live my life coincides and meshes up with how you ex- are asking me to live my life, then fine. But if you ask me or expect me to live outside of that, even just a little bit, then we're going to part ways and we'll see you later. Good luck, right? Some of us have that approach to our faith our faith with God, our relationship with God, and we come to God and, and we think, okay, well, now I have this relationship and I've got the controller in my hands. I am in charge. I am going to tell God exactly what to do with my life. And so we play the game how we think it ought to be played. And we try to manipulate and control God. Where this gets really, well, that's really, that is really dangerous, let me say that. It's really dangerous in your own personal relationship with God to try to control how God designed your relationship with him to work. That's a dangerous, dangerous mentality to be in. It's also very dangerous to bring that kind of mentality with us into our approach to church. Today we're going to look at the New Testament church and I really want to kind of dig in here. I'm going to be honest with you. This is a challenging talk for me to give. If you are new or visiting with us, uh, I'm talking a lot to our church here at 6-8 Church. So if you hear things that, that uh, are, are hard to understand or hard to hear, then we just invite you to listen along and, uh, and let, it, let it kind of sink in for those who are here at church. But I also believe that God can use this to call us to something that is greater than ourselves. And so I'm not going to make any apologies for God this morning. I'm just going to pray 
that God will speak directly to our hearts the truth that we need to hear. So if you will, will you pray with me again? Father, again, I just, just want to take a few minutes and, and quiet my heart that all the thoughts, all the ideas, all the things that, that I seek to express and get across this morning, I pray, Father, they'd be filtered through your spirit of truth for exactly what we need to hear as a body. I pray, Father, that I wouldn't say anything that you don't want to be said this morning or that we're not ready to hear. But I pray that you would speak through me exactly the message we need to hear, and I pray for all of us, myself included, that we would be ready to receive that message. Father, whatever control we think we need to have in how this community of faith looks out, looks, looks like, and plays out, Father, I pray that you would help us to lay that down, to surrender that, and to pick up your call of what this community of faith is supposed to look like. That our preconceived ideas, our preconceived notions, and all of those things that we're bringing with us from a lifetime of being involved in the church or a lifetime of knowing Christians who have abused their faith and abused their position with you to try to manipulate and control people, that all of those things that are a result of that and our defenses and, and the walls that we put up to protect ourselves from those kinds of things, that you would help us to not only break through those and shatter those once and for all, but to, from this point forward, as 6-8 church, to pick up the mantle, to pick up the, the DNA, to pick up the drawings of what you have commanded and called us to be as your body. We surrender to that. We lay down our right to control this church and ask that you be in control. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, there's a false belief that I think is prevailing in the world today about church, and that is that Church is about us. So that I go to church and I'm going to get what I want out of church, and when I stop getting what I want out of church, I'm going to go find another church, or I'll just stop going to church altogether. And I was going to play a video. There's a country song out right now called My Church. Has anyone heard that song, My Church? Yeah, um, just, it's, a, it's a clean song. It's a really, really bad idea, but it's a clean song, so you can go listen to it, or you can just look up the words, and you can even look them up right now while I'm talking if you want, but it's this, this lady, this gal, young gal, who's talking about how, how her church, and we talked a little bit about this last week, is, is going out and driving around the country roads, right, and, and just kind of going out and just kind of doing what I want and doing things the way that I like to do them, and, and that, well, I guess that's my church, and poked fun a little bit at my father-in-law last week for calling church, you know, the lake that he's fishing on that Sunday morning and, and how some of us will do that kind of thing and we'll say, well, this is, this is my church and we'll go out, you know, we'll, we'll hike up to the top of a mountain and we'll experience God and all of his creation and, and we'll say, well, this is, this is my church or we'll be in these different, you know, uh, settings that, that we say are my church and and we have, I think, done a great disservice to the true meaning of church by watering it down with what we think church is. Hopefully you know this by now because we've said it so many times, but church is not a building. This building is just a building. It is just a, a resource, a ministry resource that God has given us as a church. 
This church itself is not a building. This church itself is not holy. This is not a holy space that we're walking on. Because of what God did through sending the Holy Spirit, we are God's temple, so God himself, the presence of God, resides and dwells in us. And the presence of God is here, but it's only here because we are here and we're gathered together in his name. So church is not a building. This is a popular one right now. Actually, it's, I don't think this is quite right anymore. It says, we think church is something we do once a week. This is a false belief. This is a lie. Church is not something we do once a week. For many in our culture today, church has become something we do once a month when we feel like it. That's not true. This one we've talked about a little bit. Church is, well, that's the pastor's thing, right? That's, that's why we pay you to do this. Like, so isn't this your thing, David? Isn't this your job to be the pastor? Isn't this why you receive funds to do this work here? Isn't that your job to do the hospital visits and the funerals and visiting people when they need to be visited and counseling and running all of the ministries and doing all of the work of six? Isn't that your We think, well, so I'm the, I don't need to worry about the church because, well, that's why we pay you, right? Because that's your job. I know we're off to a real light note here this morning. It's feeling real, real, real soft, soft message. <clears throat> Those are all myths. Those are all myths about, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, actually later this summer we are going to talk about my role as the pastor here. We'll define that clearly so that you know what to expect from me and how things function here at, at the church, but we're not going to do that today. We'll do that later this summer, but what is the truth about church? Well, first, I want to clarify something. The word church actually does not appear in Scripture. Did you know that? Church comes from a, the German word Kirche, K-Y-R-C-H-E, and that was a word that was imposed into the biblical text because the church was the building that people met in. And so that became, that's why, for one, why it's so confusing today what the church is. So, at, <coughs> excuse me, after Constantine and, and, and the German world, you know, they started referring to, <coughs> excuse me, I'll drink some coffee so I'm not coughing. They started referring to this community of believers as the church because Constantine made it so that they would worship in a church on Sundays and kind of set aside a day for that to happen around 380 or so. I can't remember the exact year. Rob can tell you after the service. But, and I think actually did a lot of harm to what happened to the organic nature of our community of faith. But um, nothing we can do about history. We can just fix it in the here and now. But the word for church in the Bible is ecclesia. And I know very little, almost nothing about Greek. Rob knows a lot about Greek, and he will explain the word and break it down for you piece by piece after church, if you would like. But um, basically, the word ecclesia is what we, where we see uh, the, the idea of the church throughout the New Testament. And that, that word means, it's very important that we understand this, it does not mean building, it means called out ones, or a called out specifically community. Because we are individually called out of something, but then we're also called into a community of believers. 
So it's not called out to this individual lone ranger, go out and conquer the world for Christ kind of faith. It's called out of your individualistic, selfish ideals of what life is supposed to be. And that's actually one of the things that you get called out of and called into a community life. So we are called out community. We're called out of the darkness and into his marvelous or his wonderful life. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. So we are a called out community. The church itself does not have an address. We have a building and we have an address for that building, but we as the church, as we are scattered out of here in just a few short minutes, we are still the church whether or not we're gathered here together. So we don't have one address. We are scattered to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ into the darkness of the world. The church is not something we go to or attend. We bring the church together because we are the church right? As we come together, the church is here, but it's because we are here. We're a community, and when we're called out of the old life, called out of the darkness, one of the parts of darkness that we're called out of is our selfishness and our desire to control what faith and community is. So as you see, the title of this series is called Own It, and we want to look at what it means to own the church. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, the mortgage. Although, if anyone wants to pay that off, you have my blessing. <laughs> I'm not talking about, you know, okay, well, we're going to ask everyone to buy chairs and, you know, put your name on them. Anyone go to a church where they had names on the chairs and the pews and all of that stuff? My church growing up had, had you know, said, in, in honor of or in memory of, and they still have those pews today. They just re, they recoded them in blue fabric in the late 90s to make it a little more current and relevant, you know, because pews are still pretty relevant. <clears throat> I love my church. Maybe we should get pews again. No. A choir, yeah. I love choir. I miss choir. I was a choir conductor back in the day. I love choirs. Anyway, we're talking about owning church. Own it. What does it mean to own what, what God has called me to do here in the church? And just like last week, we shared with you from Alex and Stefan, a couple of guys who have taken a great step in owning their faith. Wanted to bring a couple up that could share with you about how they've taken a great stride in owning this as their church. Now, truth be told, we could call a lot of people up here this morning, and this is one of the things that I think we do excel at as a church, is being the church, but I also see there's a great deal of room for improvement here in what we call what we do as a church. And so I really want to dig into this, and we're going to dig into this not just today, but over the course of the summer, what God has called us specifically to do as a community. After Once we get towards the, the end of June and July, we're going to actually look at this, this vision of what God has called us to be as a church, of making a difference in this community, and not just having a tagline that says that we do that, but actually starting putting 
some meat and bones and flesh to the idea of being a church that makes a difference in the community. We do some things and we do them well, but I think God is calling us to more, and we're going to look at that over the course of the summer and how God is driving our vision in that direction. But I wanted to bring a couple up here. A lot of you know them, John and Heather Steinman, and I, know, I don't think John is feeling well this morning, but he's here anyway, and uh, they've both been fighting some stuff. But this is a couple that has really owned their role that God has given them in the church, and just wanted them to share with you and talk with you a little bit their story about how that took place. So let's give them a round of applause as they come up. Yeah, a couple of, you know, last week we just mentioned that idea, you know, difference between owners and renters. You know, an, an owner, when you own a house, you're the one that has to fix it when something is broken. When you rent, you can call the landlord and he'll come and take care of it. And that's kind of the whole heart of what we want to have going on here at the church is owners, not renters, that, that when something needs to be done, and I'm not just talking about needs to be done at the church itself or in one of the ministries itself, although that is an important part of what we do, but just something needs to be done. We own the responsibility to do it, or if we can't do it in our own strength, our own abilities, to own the responsibility to pull people together to meet the need, whatever that need is. And one of the things I was going to share with you today, Jim was gracious enough to put together a whole list of all the different ministry positions that go on here at the church, and um, I wanted to share that, but then I don't want to, I don't want to make this only about just the activity that we have here on Sundays as a church, because I think that might defeat our purpose. So we'll share that later throughout the course of the week, just so you have a picture and an idea of how many people it takes to do what we do here at our small church with a big mission at 6-8. But are you owning this place, or are you renting this place? You know, one of the ways, one of the clues to me when, when uh, if someone comes up to me, if I can tell whether I'm talking to someone who owns the ministry or, or is renting, is when there's an issue, when there's a problem, and, and they'll come up and say, hey, uh, pastor, you have a problem with your church, and just kind of lay it out, right? And then I know I'm talking to a renter. You have a problem with your church. But if someone, if one of you comes up to me and, you know, there's an issue, there's something that we need to fix or address or resolve, and you say, hey, we have a problem here, uh, I've noticed this, and I'd like, you know, your permission, which you don't really need my permission, but I'd like your permission, to, you know, maybe we can work out some kind of solution to solve this problem. Then we're talking to owners, and then we can get somewhere as a church. So are you owning or are you renting? And Heather and John are great examples of a couple who own what God has given them to do here. And they're good examples, not just because of what they said, but they wouldn't brag about themselves in this way, but, but they also, when they see a need, when they see something that needs to be done, they just take care of it. They do it. They get it done. And that's what we're looking for. And uh, John has been doing that for a long time when it comes to helping maintain the facility and done a lot of work around here that you all have noticed and all have seen. And Heather does the same thing when it comes to running the nursery. She oversees the nursery, the preschool, and the nursery. And it's just one of those things where it's just awesome to have someone who just owns it and you don't have to worry about it, right? It's not like I have to worry about how to run the nursery. Heather has taken that on and I don't have to worry about that. But as we continue on, I wanted to look at the New Testament church and get just a little bit of a picture of what the New Testament church looked like and how they acted. And then I've got some markers for, for that that I want to share with you that kind of bring in this idea of what the New Testament church looked like and consequently what we should look like as a church. So let's go to Acts chapter 2, if you will. You've probably seen this a lot of times. Actually, no, first let's go to Matthew chapter 28. 
this is the first marker that we see in the New Testament church because before we even get to Acts chapter 2, 42, and we see this description of the early church, we see by example how the church is living itself out when it first receives the Holy Spirit and the beginning part of Acts chapter 2. And you could summarize it with the great commission that Jesus gave them. And he says, all authority under heaven and earth, right? Something along those lines. If we can get that scripture up there, Kyle. Matthew 28. It's not working. Oh, you don't have that one? Well, it's in here. I'll pull it up. Something along the lines of that. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And therefore, he says, what does he say? Go. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go. Go. Not just stay here and feel comfortable in the church building on Sunday mornings, but go. Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So here we see the very first three things that the New Testament church does and this was happening in the, in the chapter 2 of Acts if you want to read that story how the new church formed. But evangelism and evangelistic preaching which is what we see Peter doing. He says all authority has been on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and Make disciples. We can't make disciples if people don't come to Christ, right? And people don't come to Christ unless they hear and receive the gospel and believe in it on their own. And so that's one of the things we try to do every Sunday or nearly every Sunday is preach and teach the gospel. And our hope is that also you will become comfortable with the gospel and sharing it and helping people understand it for themselves so that when you're out being the church throughout the week that you can share it with them. So they made disciples, then they baptized them, right? This is something we just celebrated a couple of weeks ago, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So they baptized, and as we see here in Acts chapter 2, they baptized 3,000 people there on the first day of the new church. And then they had teaching, right? They had what, what we would call apostolic teaching. And we see here now in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we have just seen an example of it, but now we have... The, the summary statement, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to teaching. They wanted to learn what God wanted to share with them. So they were learning to obey all that God had commanded them to do, like we just read in Matthew chapter 28, that, that they were, the, the apostles were commissioned with teaching all that they had received from Jesus, and now the New Testament church would be defined by being devoted to that teaching. Are we devoted to that teaching? Then there are some other great characteristics. This is one of my favorites. They were devoted to one another. And by the way, there's, there's this one word that I think has to encapsulate this whole description of the church. Because it's easy for us to kind of read this and kind of put it in you know, a, a category in a frame and just kind of box it in. But, but really, as you read and as you understand the New Testament church, all of what they did was not just kind of this lukewarm, I'm going to do this because it's what I'm supposed to do approach, but the way I think you would have to describe it is radical. And we don't like that word now, right? I mean, we don't want to be called a radical, radicals, a bunch of radicals. But that is how, exactly how, they lived out their faith in a community called out of the darkness. They were radically 
devoted to one another. Not just mildly, like, not just on Sundays. Yeah, when I, when I see somebody that I know, I'm going to go up and shake hands, I'm going to say hi, say how was your week, and just kind of have 30 seconds of fellowship with someone, and I'm going to call it good that I did what I'm supposed to do as a follower of Jesus Christ. But no, I was radically, are we radically committed to one another in this kind of community, or are we just kind of mailing it in? They were devoted to teaching and fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread and prayer. Breaking of bread... Uh, some, some would say just eating a meal, sharing a meal together would be breaking, breaking of bread. Others would say this communion, remembering what Christ has done. We need to be committed to both of those as the New Testament church, I think. So we need to be committed to breaking bread. Something happens when you're breaking bread with others in the, in the faith. That when you just sit down around a meal and you share a meal together, that you can talk and enjoy fellowship in a way that you can't always enjoy in 30 seconds on Sunday. They were devoted to prayer. When was the last time we could say we were devoted to prayer? And not just the kind of selfish prayer we talked about last week or like we could illustrate today. You know, God, give me a, I really want this new car. Um, I, I really, okay, I'm running late for work, God, and could you just kind of do the miracle of parting the seas here on the freeway so I can get to work on time? Just like to see you right now, God. Just part the, part the cars. Give me a way through. I just, I need your... I need your hand of grace and mercy here right now, or God, my boss is an idiot and I just can't handle him anymore. I'm going to kill him. I'm really going to kill him today if you don't change his heart and change his mind. You're going to have to give him some kind of supernatural imposition of knowledge and wisdom because he is just an idiot. And if you don't do this, if you don't intervene, then I'm going to end up in jail. You know, and this is our approach to prayer, right? It's always going to God and saying, I need this, do this for me, and we try to manipulate and control God to get what we want out of God. That's not really what prayer is. Prayer, like we talked about last week, is, is the key part, and there's an article I shared again uh, throughout the week on the blog so that you can have a better understanding. It's, it's communicating with your Creator and knowing what your Creator's voice sounds like and surrendering and submitting yourself to Him and doing it in a place and in a way that's not for a show and for attention, but because you actually want the relationship you do it whether anyone is looking or not are you devoted to prayer or do you just kind of use prayer as that thing you do before meals so you don't get indigestion everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles when was the last time you could say you were filled with awe at what God is doing I kind of get to sit in a special seat and see firsthand all the ways God is working here among us. And God is doing a special work here at 6 8 Church, and I really hope you're not missing that because God is alive and active and at work in this place and in this body in a way that I have never personally experienced in other churches and other ministries. And so we have a firsthand seat to this mighty God doing mighty works and wonders. Are we in awe of it or do we just take it for granted? He's going to stop there, right? Please tell me he's going to stop there. All the believers were together and held everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Sacrificial, radical generosity 
Yeah, it's getting awkward in here, I can tell. <clears throat> All right, we'll move on for that for now. We'll come back to that, don't worry. <clears throat> Christ-centered gatherings, let's look at this. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They gathered together daily around Christ. They gathered around what God had done, and they gathered around the next one, which is a radical unity. They were unified. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says that all believers were one in heart and mind. They were unified because they actually had one heart and mind, because they had received the gift of the Holy Spirit who was teaching them through all of these other things, the apostles' teaching and the community and the prayer. All of the stuff had been working to bring about the unity that they so desperately needed to have so they could be on mission that God had given them to be on. And so now they have this radical unity because they were doing what God had called them to do. And lastly, and I think it's the one that ties all of it together, we heard it from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning during the song, Proof of Your Love, is that they had radical love. Radical love. See, we could do all of these other things. We could experience all of this other stuff that kind of sounds like the community of Christ, but if we don't have a radical love for one another, it's not going to matter to anything. It's not going to amount to a hill of beans, so to say. It's just, it's just not going to be any, it's going to be empty, it's going to be void, it's going to be pointless, and by the time we get done with it, we will be drained of everything because we've poured only what we had to pour into it to try to receive it and not realizing that it is because we have been loved much that we love one another much. And I can promise us as we carry on and gather together as a community, there will come a time when you need some radical love for someone else. And if not, I can promise you that you're going to need someone else to have some radical love towards you. Don't you want to be known by love? And if we're going to be on mission, if we're going to be out in the world living as lights in the darkness, we have to do it with love. We, we can't do it from a position of pride. Can't do it from any kind of position other than I love you and God loves you so much and he wants you to know this. He wants you to experience this. He wants you to be a part of his family and a part of this truly life-giving community that, that I'm a part of. Don't, don't you want to experience what I have experienced? We have to be driven by love. What's driving you? Are you being driven by love or are you being driven by some selfish ulterior motive to look and be or make something of yourself and your name instead of making much of Jesus? Now, I said I would come back to it, but I want to explain it first before we dig into this idea of generosity. It wasn't me, another pastor shared, I think it was Mark Batterson, maybe it's been around for a long time before him, but he uses the, free, the three T's, time, talent, and treasure. And I know you're familiar with that. The, uh, Brett, when he was here, he shared those with you before me. And I know those are three ideas that, that uh, should really resonate with each and every one of us. Time, talent, and treasure. When we talk about generosity, I'm not just talking about money. Although we do need to talk about money. And I've explained and expressed many times, I... I hate talking about money. And if, 
If you're new with us, if you're visiting with us this morning, I hope you don't, I don't, I was thinking about this as, as you all are walking in, I'm like, oh man, <laughs> these new people are going to hear me just talk about money and they're going to walk away thinking the church just wants my money and that's not what I want them to understand when it comes to what we're talking about. So please don't hear that from me and talk to someone else because I really don't talk about money every single Sunday. I'm not after your money. But Jesus talked about money more or almost more than any other thing that he taught about. And there was a reason that he did that because, listen to me, God is after our hearts. God is after your heart and God is after my heart. And what that means is that anything that is going to challenge God for control of our hearts is something that must and absolutely has to be dealt with. And if we don't deal with it, if we don't address the issue of the role that money plays in our hearts and the control that money has over our lives, then we're really no disciple at all. And if our whole role and our whole goal is making disciples who look like Christ, sound like, sound like Christ, and live like Christ, then we have to talk about money. So for the rest of our time today, I'm going to talk about generosity. And again, I'm not talking because we have a big fundraiser coming up, you know, and I got to start, you know, priming the pump. We have never done a fundraiser since I've been here, although maybe we should, but we've, we've never done that. God has always provided for us as a church. Much of the time, it's week to week. Much of the time, it's praying that this Sunday's offering is going to be enough to cover the bills of this coming week. Most of the time they are. Sometimes we have to push bills off a little bit to, to cover expenses, but God has always provided. And we will be a testimony to that fact all along the way. Because we want you to know that God provides. God always provides. But I have to wonder, I have to wonder what would our community look like not just our church community, but now the extended community that we look at, this idea of church as we, as we express this love that we have received, this radical love that we have received, and we start to express it in tangible ways, what would it look like if we started living out radical generosity with our time, our talent, and our treasure? See, we start with time because that's often the hardest one at this point, and if we don't have the time, then we don't have any chance at talent or treasure and time is one of those things well it's a night this is why i put up a message on facebook earlier this week say please of all weeks to skip church because it's sunny don't skip this sunday you see a lot of people think i hammer on you got to be a church you got to be a church you got to be a church got to be a church because you know it, it makes me feel good about myself and that i don't care about you if you're not here and so on and so forth but that really isn't it. It's that if, if we're not gathered together, for one, we're not really the body if we're not gathered together. So there is that, and you can uh, argue that with me, but I can prove it theologically, so don't even try. But if we're not really here together, then there's part of the body missing. There's that. But, but if we're not here, then, then there are other things that are dominating the influence in our hearts and in our souls and in our minds. And there are things that start to take over us. And if you are like me, you'd realize that it doesn't take much at all for the world to take greater influence over you and over your life. And we have to check that. Who has the influence? 
the question we need to ask ourselves. Who has the influence in my heart and my mind and in my life? Is it God or is it the world? But then we talked about last week, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing the message and the message is the gospel, the word of God. And so some of us are, are walking through life and we, we don't have faith and we don't want to lay down this life that we have. We don't want to lay down our control of everything. We don't want to lay down all the good that God has given to me for this life of faith. And so we keep holding on to it. And that means I'm going to hold on to my time. And if my time tells me that I'm going to go skiing on a Sunday morning, then don't you try to tell me otherwise. I'm going to be out skiing. Or if I need to do this or that. Or if I'm, you know, I'm not going to invest in a relationship with another member of the community this week because I just have too much going on and it's my time. I'm going to do what I want. We just kind of hold on to it all. My time, my talent, and my treasure. And we control it. And we never have the ability to receive God's gift of faith, which only comes through hearing his word and his truth. And yes, you should be reading your Bibles every single day. And yes, you should be praying every single day. But yes, you should be here gathered together as the community of believers at 6-8 Church to hear the message of the gospel and let it ring in our hearts every single week and let it stir us up to want to go out and live the life that we've been called to live. Our generosity with these three things is what makes us distinct because in this world, we know that that is not the truth. But remember, we have been called out, ecclesia, called out into a community that looks like this. So we're called out of the ways of the world. We're called out of the selfishness of the world. We're called out of the desires of the world and into a radical faith. And one of those things is radical generosity with our time, our talent, and our treasure. And again, there are some of you here who are radically generous with those things. And I'm not, I'm not just trying to dog on, dog on you this morning. But we also experience radical generosity from non-believers on a weekly basis here at our church. I don't want to judge faith of those who, who I don't really know that well to know whether or not they have a relationship. I know that there are believers that, that volunteer like at the food pantry on a weekly basis. And they don't come to church here, but they just have a deep desire to to want to give of their time, to give of their time generously. And one of the things that always does for me is it challenges me. Am I being as generous as those who don't come here? Am I being as generous as those who don't even have a relationship? And it should challenge us all. Are we generous? My point in saying that is because I want to talk about our motive in generosity. It's because you don't have to be a believer to be generous, right? We see people around us all the time who don't believe, who are very generous people, right? This is kind of the common grace maybe that they've received and God has given, this, given them this ability to be generous and that's who they are. And sometimes, to our discredit, there are many non-believers who are much more generous than believers. And this is one of the things I really hope we can start to correct as a church, But what is motivating you? You know, a lot of times the, the motivation for those who don't know Christ and those outside the faith is that they can kind of have their name put on a building, right? You know, the big donors. And I remember this when I was going to school at Indiana Wesley, and, you know, we, we had this building, and it was named after the Philippi, the Philippi Performing Arts Center, right? And that's because they gave the most money towards the project, and so they got the name on the building. So there are a lot of different motives, but what is motivating you and generosity? Here's what I hope is motivating us. 
So we have received generosity from God in such lavish ways that we become overwhelmed with God's generosity to us so it must flow out of us. Let me read that to you again. We, we've received such great generosity from God in such lavish ways that, that we become overwhelmed, overwhelmed with God's generosity to us. And so there is no response except to pour out this generosity on the world around us. See, the Bible tells us that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God was generous, generous to us in his love for us when we had done nothing to deserve it. So shouldn't we be generous to those who have yet to deserve God's grace? Because, by the way, if you're ever thinking you're going to be able to live and earn in such a way that you deserve and earn God's grace, that's not how it works. But what I hope you hear is that God is a God of abundance. Don't hear me wrong, I'm not going to start preaching health and wealth and that if you just believe in God, he's going to make you rich and you're going to get everything you ever desired and wanted. But God, as he describes himself, is radical in his abundance toward his approach to his love for us. God, who is rich in mercy. Right? That's how God is described. God is rich in love. Psalm 103, he made known his way to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Listen to this, slow to anger and abounding, abundant in love. God is abundant. God is a God of abundance. God has lavished his love upon us. 1 John 3, 1, we talked about this a while ago when we went through 1 John as a series. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. It's not what great love the Father has dribbled on us as he just kind of sprinkles the love on. It's, just, it's lavished. It is poured out in abundance on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. We are God's children. But I was thinking about it too. Motive number two, we have received much, so we should give much. But this is the other motive, and I've been thinking a lot about this this week as I drive around. You know, we live up in a really beautiful part of the world, and God has really blessed us to be able to live there and just have this beautiful drive as we go up there. And I see the mountains, and I see the trees, and I see the rivers, and I see the lakes, and I see the dam, and all the wisdom that God has given man to be able to create these things, and all the different houses, and all the different farms, and all the different animals, and all the different things. And, and it's been hitting me more and more over the last several weeks that this all is his. This whole world, this whole earth, and everything in it is his, and that is what we read in Scripture, that the whole earth and everything in it is his. And who did he put kind of at the steering wheel, at the helm of, of, of being a good steward of everything? Man, when did he do it? At the very beginning. He told us to have dominion over everything, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the land and all the livestock to have dominion over it. He gave us the stewardship responsibility of it all. Everything we have is his already. And you might say, but I, I, I work really hard for what I have. I labor over what I have. I have spent many hours to try to get this much money so I can live and rest and have recreation because I have worked really hard. But 
Can I ask you a question? What about the people around the world who work a lot harder than you but make three or four dollars a day? Don't they work really hard? And if how hard we worked was what led us to deserve the ability to do and control and you know, be whatever we want with our money, wouldn't they have more say over it than us? And what we're going to learn is, in fact, they are usually a lot more generous than we who have a lot of it. This is the truth. We have what we have because God chose to put you and I where we are so that we can be his stewards of his resources. So that we can be a kingdom of priests who reveal to the world who God really is. He's given us his resources so that we can be on his mission to go out and bring his people who are lost and dying into his kingdom and sit at his table under his feet because he is their father too. This is why he gives us his resources, not for our hoarding, but for his mission. And we all need to know as believers in Jesus Christ, we're going to be held accountable for how we steward God's resources. How did you use the time that he gave you? How did you use the talent that he gave you? How did you use the treasure that he's given to you? How do we measure generosity? 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, it says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful there means hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. God loves someone who gives and just, <laughs> this is so, I can't, I can't even, I can't even, just, I'm just so grateful to be able to give. When was the last time that happened? God loves a cheerful giver. By the way, it should be noted, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God should not have to beg for what is already his. If the only way you ever give to God is when the pastor really pleads with you and guilt trips you and does all that stuff to give to you, are you giving with a cheerful heart? Or are you giving under compulsion? As we see, what metric, how do we measure, what does, how do we measure generosity? That God looks at the heart when he's talking about measuring generosity. Remember, Remember, there was a, a woman who gave, and she came into the temple, and you know, the, all the other Pharisees and people had been giving offering into the temples, and they would kind of blow this horn when they'd make this big donation. Do, 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 I just made a big donation. And then this lady comes in, and she just kind of puts one coin into the offering in the temple, and Jesus asks the question, who has given the most in here? And it was the woman who had given the most because she gave sacrificially. The others were giving because they had a lot to give, and they just gave a little bit out of the abundance they had, but this woman had given all that she has. So God is looking at your heart. He's looking at my heart, and he's looking at, at how we're giving as much as what we're giving. The attitude with which we give is important, and that we give is important, and what we give is important, but it's all tied together. Now you're saying, all oh, the church once is my money. That's what I said. She's after my money, Pastor. It's always after my money. It always comes down to money. Why you always got to talk about money? Well, God doesn't care about money because it's all His anyway. He wants your heart. 
And if money is in control of our hearts, and if money is making all of these decisions, and we make all of the decisions in our life based on what we have or what we want or what we don't have or what we think we're going to need at some point down the road, who really has our heart? Is it God or is it the money that's in control? We're not going to put boxes out. We might put boxes out, but we're not going to ring horns based on the size of the gift that comes in. In fact, we would love to just move away from taking an offering in the service altogether and just having boxes because we know that our people are going to give. And so many of you do give so faithfully. Don't hear me wrong. But I also know that for some of us, myself included, that the percentage that we give, maybe it's a tithe, you know, the 10% that we give, is we've just been given that our whole lives, and that's where we've found, you know, some comfort and peace to be able to do that, and it's not really a sacrifice for anymore. We're just used to doing it, and God might be calling us to make a little more of a sacrifice. Some of us may may have gotten used to, to volunteering, you know, a couple hours a week. Well, I'm going to volunteer a couple hours a week, and that's just kind of my, my time that I give to God, but don't you dare ask me for any more. And so some of us need to really check our heart and say, you know what, I am not cheerfully giving of my time. I need to start giving cheerfully of my time because God has given it to me and entrusted it to me, and He loved me enough to die for it so that He could redeem it. Shouldn't I give more of my time. And some in this church, we firmly believe that God assembles and draws people from all walks of life and all different places all over the globe to be able to come here to this church because they have talents that this, not only this church community, but this community at large needs. And that as you come here and you have a talent that we don't have and a knowledge that we don't have, that God brought you here for a reason to use that talent for building his kingdom, for his glory, to go out into the darkness and, and push back the darkness with the light of the gospel. And if you whore, hoarding on to that and holding on to it and not using it for his glory, then God wants to check that too. He wants to call that into question this morning. Lastly, I want to look at uh, a few quick methods of giving and then we're going to wrap up and I'll stop pressuring you and making you feel guilty. By the way, I want to know that there's a difference between pressure and pleading. I'm pleading with you this morning because this is what's best for us and what's best for you and what's best for all of us. I'm not pressuring you to do something for my benefit. I am pleading with you to do something for yours. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, and there's a guy named John Tyson. He's a pastor out of New York, and he originally came up with these four different areas, and I didn't get the first actual name, so we're just going to read the scripture and let it speak for itself, but Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 says, so then as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is where God wants us, I think, to, to bring our first offering, our first act of generosity of our time, our talent, and treasure to those who are of the household of faith. You'll see throughout the entire New Testament that this community radically cared for one another in ways that we could not even understand today. And if we, if we even tried to do it right now, it would just look weird. And I hope God leads us and moves us to a point where we start doing that and chipping away at becoming that kind of community. But, but the, they loved and cared for one another radically. I mean, absolutely insane, radical generosity. Are you giving to this community? 
Are you giving to support the work that God is doing here or are you saving things for other places? And It's not that that's bad to be generous in other areas of life, but are you being generous here too? Number two is spontaneous giving. I actually have the name for the rest of them. Acts chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. People who have resources, when they hear of a need, give of their resources to meet that need. That was how it worked, and this is in the body of Christ. This is for those who are in the community. People who have resources, when they hear of a need, they give of their resources to meet that need. This is something we're working on doing a little bit better as a church. The third one is secret generosity, and this is the one I think has the greatest potential for reaching those outside the faith with God's generosity. Matthew chapter 6, verse 3 and 4 says, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, but do it in secret. Sounds a lot like going into the secret place and having your relationship with God in secret because you want to have the right motive. Do you have the right motive when you give or do you want the attention? But when you give, give in secret. And when you do this, this amazing thing happens. The only one who gets praise for that gift is God. When you give in secret, they can't come to you and say thank you and you shouldn't go around and brag to people about how generous you are because it's not in secret anymore and it's not that there's not a place for sharing about how God has blessed you to bless others. There is a place for that. But in this instance, think about how this can bring about people giving praise to God and you don't get the credit, but God gets the credit. And isn't that the whole point? We want God to get the credit for it all. It's all his anyway. Don't we want people to be drawn to God? Isn't that the whole point of what we're doing is that that God gets the credit? What if we were to give secretly so that God could get the praise? Lastly, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 7, the sacrificial generosity. Special, secret, and then sacrificial And now, brothers and sisters, this is Paul talking to the church at Corinth. This is in his second letter, which is, by the way, all about the offering that he's asking for them. So uh, this started back in the beginning of the early church, and money was also obviously a problem in the very early church. We want to hold on to it because we think it's ours. We're not alone in that. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, Titus is the one who was going out to deal with the Corinthian church, just as he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. And then he ends with a word of encouragement, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. You see, I think that's a lot like us, is that, is that we actually excel in so much here, is that, 
that we excel as a community of faith at 6-8 Church, and we excel in a lot of these areas. We excel in faith, and so it's almost like Paul could be saying to us that since you excel in everything, 6-8 Church, since you excel in your faith, and we have seen the faith that you have, we've seen the way that you're living out your faith and the way that you have trusted God to do things that only God could take credit for, we have seen you excel in your faith. We have seen you excel in your speech, and we hear you sing and speak of God's praises when you're gathered together, and we see you sing and speak of God's praises when you are outside in the world uh, that doesn't know. We see your speech, the way you speak, that you excel in honoring God, and we see in your knowledge that you have not just kept this faith at this elementary level like we talked about last week, but that you are maturing in your faith, and you are letting the knowledge of God saturate your mind so that you can replace the lies of this world and the lies of the enemy with the truth of God. We see that you excel. We see that you excel in your complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you. We see you excel in these things. Do you excel also in this grace of giving? See, the Macedonian church, they were a poor church. They had what they called extreme poverty. We, we talk about poverty here, although our poverty in America is not really anything like poverty that they would be experiencing they were oppressed, they were being persecuted. And what happened? See, I think if, if we were in that situation, what would happen would be, well, yeah, God, I, I really want to give, but I mean, look at how I'm being, being treated. I, I really want to give sacrificially, but it, I just don't have any money to give from. It's just, I'm just, you know, I, I am being persecuted. I may even be martyred for your name. How can I possibly be generous? But what did the Spirit of God do in the churches in Macedonia? said they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. They asked if they could give the offering. Do you know when the last time I was asked if we could take an extra offering was? Y'all should know. Never. <laughs> I've never had anyone come up to me and say, hey, hey, pastor, you took that offering and I just didn't have a chance to give enough. Can you take another offering? A lot of pastors do that. We're never going to do that here. Send the plate around. Go count it. It's not enough. Send it around again. Never, never going to happen. Two things I kind of want to paint a picture of as we close, and I know I've gone long again, and I do ask for your forgiveness on that, but really trying to share some very important and urgent information with you. In Exodus chapter 36, we see the first offering that was kind of asked of, uh, of God's people and it was asked for in 35, and it was all to do this kind of basically an art project essentially for the community of faith, which is amazing. They called the craftsmen, the skilled builders of, of the community to come together and do this immaculate work that had been commanded by God. And you can go read all about it in chapter 35 and all the details of it. It's really quite astounding and quite amazing. But one of the things that really uh, amazes me is what happens in Exodus chapter 36, and I think we have this one for you, right? Then Moses, after, they had been, after the people had been coming, summoned that guy and the other guy and every skilled person <laughs> to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. 
So Moses had sent out, hey, come do this work because God has asked us to do this project. And they received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out of the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, listen to this, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. And then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp, no man or woman is to make anything else except as an offering for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing more because what they had already had was more than enough for all the work. Can you imagine what that would look like in our churches today? It's like, hey, stop giving. I mean, come, we just have, we have literally mountains of cash. The bank won't take our cash anymore because we have filled up the accounts. We don't have any more work that we can do with the money. I mean, all the people of Hazelville and Vancouver and Clark County, they're already saved. Everyone has been healed. All the poverty has been taken up. It's spread all the right around. We've given every church in all of the world all the money we have, and you still keep giving it. Stop, please. And I know we laugh and we, it's kind of funny and I, I know, but the truth is God is a God of abundance. And he has more than enough to do that. What gets in the way is us. Caesar Hadrian was Caesar of Rome in 117 and he was kind of weirded out by the cult of Christianity. They were called the way at that time at and you can go read that name in Acts chapter 2. Their influence was growing both in his community and globally, and he wanted to send out someone to kind of understand what was taking place, and so he sent Aristides, I'm guessing that's how it's pronounced maybe, to go and inspect, and as he goes, Aristides goes out and inspects and sees what's happening among this Christian community, he sends back this letter, and you can actually go read the whole letter online, and it's an amazing a, you know, apologetic or argument for the Christian community that takes place. And this is just an excerpt from it. He says to Caesar Hadrian, says, they love one another, and he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. When they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is among them, got to get the right notes here, any that are poor and needy, and listen to this, if they have no spare food, they fast for two or three days in order to supply to the need of the lack of food. Such, O King, is their manner of life, and verily or truly, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. Isn't that exactly what we want to have happen for us as a Christian community, that, that people would just see the radical way that we, that we love one another, and when God brings people who aren't even a part of our community into this community, we love them as though they're a part of this community. We just love them radically, and we're willing to, even if it means we have to go without food for two or three days, make sure that those who don't have food get food, and, and that this would be the testimony that those who see and experience our community to the world that does not yet believe 
Such, O king, is their manner of life, and verily this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. How far have we come since then? American Christianity doesn't really look like that, does it? American evangelicalism, whatever you want to call it. We can't fix that problem. We can't fix all of Christianity in America. But what if that started to change here for us? What if that started to change that that we became this kind of people? That we loved one another radically and that we cared for one another radically and we cared for the strangers radically and, and we cared for the oppressed radically and we cared for those who can't care for themselves radically and we just, we loved in such a way that we gave of our time, our talent, and our treasure to make sure that the mission of God was pushed out into the darkness so that those who don't yet know might know and that they might finally see and come into the light and they could be called into this called out community that we are part of. What if, what if our life was just drawn up and tied up in this desire and this passion to become this kind of community and this kind of church? And what if we became the kind of community that as a church, you know, instead of me every Sunday kind of coming up here and pleading with you, just give a little more or be a little more or try a little more or live a little more or go out and share a little more, it just became, I, it's just like, you know what, you guys are doing such a great job, I need to find something else to talk about because there's just so much grace going on and so much love going on. Wouldn't that just be an astounding community so that just people come in and say, you know what, you don't even need to talk to the pastor, just go talk to him or to her, to him or to her, to him or to her because they're gonna love you the way you need to be loved. In this community, we not only need to give to one another sacrificially, but lastly, very lastly, sometimes generosity is stifled by the pride of the need. I can tell you this is something that I struggle with. Sometimes we have needs that arise and I don't want to open up, I don't want to share with anyone, I kind of want to be, you know, I, I, I'll take care of myself. So we don't want to share. You know, we have a need and we could really use some help. And I know that there are many in here who would fall into that camp that we've got this pride that we can do it and we can take care of it, but Isn't that just another thing we're holding on to? Isn't that just another way that we're holding on and saying, you know what, I need God in every area except for when it comes to people helping me, and so I'm going to hold on to my own ability to provide and care for myself. I'm not going to lay that down, and I'm just going to keep controlling my life that way. Isn't that just another way that we're holding on to things that we really need to lay down if we really want to experience all of God's kindness toward us? And so I would say to you not to change your thinking and say, well, okay, now I'm going to try to get everything I can out of the community because I know that there's a lot of people there that the, if a lot of them just give a little bit, then I can get what I need. No, don't go to that kind of thinking, but don't let pride keep you from bringing the community into your life. See, we pour out our lives into those who have needs, but do we let them pour back? Because the primary way that we're going to receive and experience God's love is through one another. 
And sometimes we need to lay it down so that we can receive. So I'm challenging, I'm asking today, and I'm pleading with us today that this become a change for us. That this, this kind of becomes, you know, a marker. Yesterday I was working up the garden. We were tilling up the soil, and, and you know, there's a lot of river rock up there buried in the ground. And every year when I'm tilling, you know, it kind of hit this spot, and the tiller just starts bouncing around because there's rock. And so I'm going to start digging out these rocks. I mean, this is ridiculous, you know, and get down there. And it's just, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's almost like somebody, and this is exactly the thought that came to mind. It's like, I think that, you know, the monuments that they built in the Old Testament to come and remember what God had done there. I think the Ark of Noah might actually be somewhere up on that mountain. And this is the altar, the first altar that they built when they came off of that because there's just so many rocks and they just kind of built this rock here and uh, over the years it had been kind of filled in by dirt and, you know, all that stuff. But this is, this is where we remembered and we sacrificed and we remembered what God had done. And maybe today could kind of be that for us. I'm kidding. I don't really think Noah's Ark is in the farm. But Maybe this can be a day where we're, you know, we're just going gonna, gonna to remember this day. and We're going we're gonna to remember how God moved us and how God stirred us to this day start becoming the church that he called us to be with a radical love for one another that leads us to radically live out and pour out our lives for his kingdom purpose. Would you stand? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I thank you for the way you have shown your love to us. I thank you for grace and expressing these ideas this morning. I thank you for the grace of those who are gathered here. I thank you that no one stormed out of the room, no one threw tomatoes. I thank you for your radical love. This love that cannot be explained. This love that, that we, we, we just can't really even fathom or grasp and how you have loved us so extremely. Father, I pray today that that love would radically change who we are. And that from this point forward, from this day forward, as we leave this place, that you would alter our lives in a radical generosity kind of a way that we're going to radically pour out our lives on the world around us. Now we're not going to come up with excuses and say, well, I was saving that money for this thing that I really wanted to enjoy, or I just don't have enough money to give from, or, you know, I'm just really too busy. I don't have enough time to give the time that you're asking of me. I just don't, I just can't do it. I, you know, I just, or, you know, the, I spend all of my waking hours using my talent for this thing. How can I possibly give it to you too? And Father, I pray that you would help us to see that in your economy, in your way of working, in your system of how the world works, that, that you are not limited by our limitations. that you are greater, that you are higher, that your love is far outside anything we could ever imagine. 
And Father, I pray that you would help us to get that perspective, that overarching, over and above perspective, and that we would no longer be the stumbling block, or we'd no longer be the anchor, we'd no longer be the thing holding back the work that you want to do, but that we, from this point forward, on this day, we decide, I'm taking that step into what you have called me to. I'm going to live sacrificially like you've called me to, and I'm going to do it for your glory so that you receive the praise. And I hope and I pray that those who don't know are coming to you through what I'm doing. Father, give us that boldness, give us that courage, give us that passion, give us that drive. And Father, may this not just be another Sunday where we can't wait for the pastor to shut up so we can go and enjoy the sunny weather. But Father, let this permanently alter our state of thinking and who we are in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.